This is Island Waves. You're listening to Something to Talk About, a series on everyday people and giving them a voice into their lives. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward. This is Island Waves, and you're listening to Something to Talk About, and we're here today with musician, author, playwright, director, and multi-level activist, Mr. Glenn Hilke. Glad to have you along with us today, Glenn. We left off in part one with you bicycling your way from the south, making your way due north through the border, and landing in Montreal. How difficult of a transition was that for you, Glenn? It was hard. I mean, I was so deeply connected to the Atlanta arts community at that time. I mean, I had just finished a big project in September of 82 with Alice Lovelace and Leslie Fredman called uh, the Art for the People's Sake Festival, which was a multidisciplinary arts festival that lasted a month. And I also had brought and created a chapter of a group that had started in New York earlier in 1982, or maybe it was 81, called uh, Performing Artists for Nuclear Disarmament. And I had created a chapter of that in Atlanta. And and when we had a big inaugural performance of that at the, um, I don't know if you remember the Dance Collective? I do. That was right next to Seven Stages. Yeah. And Harry Belafonte came down for that. And yeah, so... That would have been 1980, Glenn? 1982. 1982. So, yeah, I was still quite immersed in everything arts, but I don't know. There was just something inside of me that said, you got to go. Time to leave. Yeah. Uh, So when you left Atlanta, so you said that was January of 1983? Did you drive? Did you just pack up and go? Or did you stick out the thumb again? How did you get to Montreal? Well, interestingly, the first time for the visit in the summer, I I probably took the train from Atlanta up to New York. Yeah, I took the train to New York, and then I bought a bicycle in New York. My parents were still living there then. Yeah, I, I went to New York, visited them, bought a bicycle, and I rode my bike up the Champlain Valley up to Montreal. You didn't ride your bike all the way, did you? I did. Yeah, it took me That's a four journey. Days. I mean, yeah, that must have been, that, that could be a whole experience in itself, the whole it mindset. and. Yeah, well, I was doing a lot of biking when I lived in Atlanta. I, was, I lived on my bicycle. I was mostly on the bike. So I was in good shape. I mean, I, I didn't have experience like with long distance biking. I mean, listen, I was 29 years old. You know, how much, you know, how much uh, thinking and pre-planning went into anything those days? Besides, you know, an impulse and... An impulse and a goal. Yes, the impulse, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so I took four or five days. I got up there and met her in Montreal. Her name name is Christiane. And then we got on a bus and went up to Bay St. Paul from Montreal. And it was was magical. It was was so beautiful. And the people were so friendly. and, And they were doing some performances that summer. So I got to see more of their work. And yeah, it was it was fun. It was uh, it was great, great time. And so 
that kind of uh, sealed the deal for me to to then want to um, uh, move up there, which I did in the middle of winter. Jesus, that was like intense. Well, you know that you're meant to be and to stay if you arrive in the middle of winter and you don't tuck tail and go back. And that's quite a change from Atlanta to Montreal Mm. or to Canada. We'll be right back with more of Something to Talk About and today's guest, Glenn Hilke. Island Waves. Something to Talk About is a series on everyday people and giving a voice into their lives. This series is dedicated to James David Withers, friend, mentor, author, and poet. And also to Shirley Eckhart, composer of our theme song, singer, songwriter, and namesake of our program, Something to Talk About. And we're back with Glenn Hilke. Uh, When we left off, you had made a drastic move. Uh, I think you were up in Vermont. Uh, you met Christiane. Is, am I saying her name right? Christiane, yes. Christiane. Mm-hmm. And you eventually found yourself in Montreal. And then from there you went to... Bay St. Paul. And were you on uh, a visa when you arrived? Did they have such a thing? No, no, no. I had, I had, you know, no idea of what the requirements are nor did I think I even bothered to look into it. Well, correct um, me if I'm wrong, but mid-80s, I don't think that there was that much structure as far as uh, going between the U.S. and Canada. No, the first time I went over with a bicycle, they were a bit um, surprised to to see me. I just said I was going to visit friends for the weekend. I had no idea how long I was going to be there. And they just, you know, said the basics, anything to declare, that kind of thing. And for years, Virginia, I went back and forth over the border like that until I established permanent resident status in 1988, I think it was. And did you do that from this side or were you back in the U.S.? Because I know at some point, I, I remember you saying that you found yourself back in Atlanta. Right. That was in 19, that was in 1989. I had a brief return to Atlanta, but in those years from 82 to uh, roughly 88, I I was just uh, kind of free and easy cross-border traveler. And I don't say this with any uh, pride, young white male, seemingly harmless, just saying I'm going to visit friends for a short period of time and nothing to declare. Thank you very much. Have a nice trip. Well, I think the border people are pretty savvy and, and uh, if I may use the pun, sniffing out any problems. And I think they're, you know, they do their job well. And again, it was a different time. I guess you can say pre and post 9-11 changed things. But, you know, up to that point, there was there was a format, but it wasn't as insane as it had become. Right. Yeah. And as we go along and talking, you know, I'll I can tell you just kind of how far that that visitor status, I guess you could say, lasted and and what I was doing during the time when I really wasn't a visitor anymore in Canada as of uh, the spring of 85. Because you had declared permanent residency? I had had decided that, yeah, Yeah. I was going to stay. Right. Yeah. and uh, That changes things quite a bit. Yes. How long uh, did the process take once you made that decision? I, I, you made your application from this side, correct? And did, was it a lengthy period before you got your permanent residency? 
I can't recall exactly, but I was married February of 1986, and I applied for the um, permanent residence and therefore citizenship status uh, shortly after that. So it probably took close to a couple of years for it to happen. Yeah, That's not a bad turnaround, comparatively. And I go back from, you know, 20 years ago, 20 or more years ago. And now there's uh, there's like a five-year waiting period, not for vetting, just in their processing. They're just so inundated with not only applications for permanent residency, but also for for qualifying for citizenship. Yeah, I mean, I went through a process of, of getting that status because I had uh, proven that I could fulfill a job that no one else in Canada could fulfill at the time. And... Yeah, I don't know how, you know, stringent or, you know, intense the investigation went into my application, but I'm sure there were plenty of other Canadians that could have done the job that that I said that I was doing, which was basically running um, a not-for-profit organization that had national and um, international projects going on. And what was that organization? So back in this period of, of Bay St. Paul, and I'm a member of this theater company in Bay St. Paul, there were actually two companies. So the one that I first came into contact with when I met them at the Bread and Puppet, was they were called Les Souffleurs d'Image, translation, the image blowers. Christian was a part of that company. There were two other members um, that were a married couple, and then myself. And my role in that company was um, to add percussion to the work, to the puppetry-based performances. And there were more children, children theater and family theater-oriented stories. Uh, but as I continued uh, living there and working, uh, Christian and I, almost in the same spirit uh, that Barbara and I uh, began working together, we developed a, an artistic relationship apart from the other members of the company, worked on different different types of performances that were more geared toward adults uh, and storytelling without puppetry, but more with song and, and percussion. And also that had a flavor of uh, indigenous spirit to it. I don't want to say indigenous culture, but spirit. And that for that work, we, we gave a name. Uh, we never created a legal company, so to speak, but uh, we called the company Transmyth, all one word, trans as it sounds and myth in french is spelled m-y-t-h-e so okay. trans myth meaning kind of crossing myths crossing cultural myths and so on the time in bay st paul was not just purely my presence in canada as i mentioned earlier just before i left atlanta i had initiated a chapter of what was called performing artists for nuclear disarmament which originated in new york city by harry belafonte and it was the only chapter of its kind because you know new yorkers don't necessarily think about franchising right if they if they develop something they're like well this is a new york thing and this will stay a new york thing so they were kind of shocked when i called them and i said i had attended the inaugural event in new york city i was very moved by it and i would like to create a chapter of it in atlanta and they were like whoa uh we hadn't thought about franchising it so to speak or you know extending Branching it out yeah and so they agreed to it and 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 i don't know if it still lives on today in atlanta or not i know it did for quite a while after i left what happened afterwards when i moved to to canada was that um they had asked me to go to other cities to try and start other chapters and so 
I was going back and forth from Bay St. Paul into cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, St. Louis, New Orleans, um, meeting the arts community there, introducing them to performing artists for nuclear disarmament, asking them if they would be interested to, you know, to start their own chapter with whatever help they would need from, from myself as kind of like this consultant, so to speak, but also from the, the national office in New York. And so, uh, yeah, I maintained that relationship with the states in that way. And it was also a very you know, humble but important revenue stream for me because there wasn't a whole lot of revenue coming from the theater company in, in uh, Bay St. Paul. Where, do, where, do I, where does that lead to? So it's funny because there's a Harry Belafonte connection to this as well. And Harry Belafonte was not anybody that I had known in terms of project collaboration before the Performing Artists for Nuclear Disarmament experience. So my father dies in November of 1983. I'm still living in, in Bay St. Paul. And in November of 1984, I go down for a kind of one-year anniversary I decide to just go into Manhattan and kind of walk around, take a stroll. And I'm in the area close to Midtown Manhattan, just walking around on a, I don't know, Friday, Saturday night or whatever. And I come across a sign on a lamppost that says Children of War presentation, something or another. But the Children of War title got my attention. And I see Harry Belafonte's name as a speaker at this thing. And I look at to find out the logistics, you know, time, place and so on. And I'm literally standing outside of where it's happening at the moment. Serendipity. <laughs> yes. So I walk in and there I'm, I'm listening to, to teenagers from around the world talking about their experiences of living in, in war-torn countries and their participation to try to bring about some peaceful resolution to it in, in any way that they can. And Harry Belafonte is there. And I don't talk to him afterwards, but... I'm kind of like at the tail end of Bay St. Paul for a number of reasons. Uh, the theater company is kind of coming to an end for various reasons. The, um, my relationship with Christiana is, is ending primarily because, not because we don't love each other anymore, but I've come to realize I want kids. And I don't know if that has to do with my father's death a year earlier, but she definitely doesn't want to have kids. Although I, I almost agreed to a condition that would mean that we would be lifelong soulmates if I would get a, um, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, altered? Yes. You know, I can't think of the word right now. I know the word, but I think altered would, you know, kind of explain it. Mm -hmm. without, yeah. any, without anybody going to, you know, put a shield or cover themselves. So I think altered. Altered, right. <laughs> I just didn't have it in me. I just realized, no, I can't do this. And that was kind of like the beginning of the end of negotiating the end of our relationship. We're still friends today, but that was that was kind of the end of it. And the transition, I could feel the transition coming from Bay St. Paul to where I didn't know where. And so what do I do? Just like back a few years, a couple of years earlier, when I called the New York Office of Performing Artists for Nuclear Disarmament, which is called PAND, by the way. So I'll just refer to it as for its acronym. PAND. What is the acronym? PAND, P-A-N-D, okay, the first letter. Right. Yeah. I called the Children of War tour office in New York, and I introduced myself. I say hi, and I was at your final presentation. I was very moved, and I think we could really use something like this in Canada. And they're like, what? We're not thinking about franchising this, but 
like, what did you have in mind? And I, you know, I said, well, I'm not quite sure yet, but you know, I would have to figure out if, if I can put together a team to do this. And, and by the way, Harry Belafonte um, knows me in a kind of a distant way, but if you need a reference, you know, you can speak to him about uh, what I did to bring the pan chapter to Atlanta. And so Judith Thompson, who started this children of war tour concept, she got the reference from, from him and she agreed to meet with me. I went to New York and met with her and we came up with a plan. And so the plan had me going to Montreal because I needed a base, which I knew couldn't be in, in Bay St. Paul. By that time, I was pretty fluently bilingual from living in, in uh, rural Quebec for those two years. And I, I had to find a team and I um, made some contacts and somebody put me in touch with students that were running the university newspaper at McGill called the McGill Daily, which was a kind of a liberal to left wing publication done by students. And I met with them and I said, this is an idea that I have. I'm looking for a group of people that would work with me on this project. Uh, it's going to be a big challenge. Uh, there's going to be very little money in the beginning. I think that we'll you know, find success uh, once we get going on it. Now, what year would that have been, Glenn? This was 1980. This was the March of 1985. And then I had one last uh, iron in the fire at that time. I had gone to Chicago, like I said, as a consultant for PAND. And the Chicago community was very interested in starting a chapter and called me and asked me if I would be the director of the program there. And in other words, move to Chicago. And so I had these two things going on two very distinct opportunities yeah and i you know had that meeting with the students at mcgill uh then i said to them i'll check back in with you with them in a month i moved to chicago just on a temporary basis to check that out i didn't have a great feel for it but i didn't know what was going to happen in, in canada i went back to canada met with the students and they said yeah let's do this and so i said okay let's try it and that was the beginning of what of what we call the International Youth for Peace and Justice Tour. So we took, we just added a different kind of Canadian name to the Children of War Tour. But the same premise. The same, exact same premise, right. exact same structure. We called it Youth and Not Children because the participants were teenagers. And there's a great documentary that um, the NFB did of the first year of that program called Children of War. That is just absolutely fascinating. So... So this was in Montreal that you were doing this. Ah, that was in Montreal, and when we had a we had a big kind of splash kickoff for the program when it when it started in the fall of 1985. So the first tour we did was to just three provinces. I believe it was Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Ontario. We had a big kind of uh, inaugural uh, event. I asked Harry Belafonte if he would come, and did he? And he and he did. And, and he funny. did. <laughs> he did. He came. That's and so amazing. He was the keynote speaker at McGill. And it was very funny. He said uh, right at the beginning, he said, you know, I'm really happy to be here in Montreal. He had some great memories of performing in Montreal over the decades uh, um, in his career. And then he said, and I'm here because, and this is the expression he used, the long cultural arms of Hilke reached out and grabbed me and pulled me back in. That was yeah. quite the tribute. So yeah. you're you're beaming because you're you're getting you're getting it done and, and you're following your dream and your hearts and your passion. And I'm an illegal immigrant living in Canada. 
No, uh, I thought at that point you had gotten your residency. No. No. Okay, no. so this isn't there. Okay, we we went back a little bit. Yeah. So this this is just this is just a reflection on the times, right? This is pre-internet, pre-everything, right? That can track who you are, where you are, what you're doing, and so on. And yeah, so here I am, a U.S. citizen with no visa, no working anything, and I'm launching and running an international, well, a national program in Canada, headquartered in Montreal, that has international component to it because we're bringing youth from 40 different countries. Because in the second year, we're now in 10, all the provinces. And the third year, we're in the provinces and the territories. And I have no legal status. And I'm, I have pictures of me with the prime, with Mulroney. Is that who was prime minister at the time? Yeah. Jean Charest, who was, who was the premier of Quebec, and so on. And yeah, nobody even bothered to ask anything. Well, I don't think it was part of the climate back then. Yeah. There wasn't this... I don't even know what the atmosphere to call it, a combination of hostility and paranoia and, and I guess, high-level security and suspicion on, on everyone. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be, obviously, uh, some concessions made. We're not interested in it happening slowly anymore. Well, it's been a we long, can't long afford time. to have uh, happen slowly anymore. Yeah. You know, the things have sped up. And I'm going to circle around to something. With all this stuff going on about you know, everybody digging in, taking sides. There's so many other issues that are going on, as you well know, because you're involved with it. The environmental stuff, the, the homelessness, the food insecurities, uh, the disproportions among the, uh, the, the socioeconomic stratosphere. Mm -hmm. You're involved, you eventually, and I know we skipped a big part here, and we'll probably circle back around to how you got from, uh, you know, how you got back to Atlanta and then back up and over to Kamloops. You know, I want to I want to talk about that eventually uh, it, about the you know the loop and the different projects that you're involved with. Mm -hmm. You're listening to something to talk about, and we'll be right back after this. Hey children, this is Nana Anna. Be sure to tune in to Storytime with Nana Anna, where I'll be reading The Adventures of Koopa the Field Mouse, a dandy story written by local author Joan Doucette, right here on Island Waves. And you can get your very own copy of The Adventures of Koopa the Field Mouse at Barnes & Noble. Also on Amazon, at your local home hardware, twice upon a bookstore in Montague, and Cooper's Red and White in beautiful downtown Belfast. So, get out and support your local author, and tune in to Storytime with Nana Anna, right here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.
And we're back with today's guest, Glenn Hilke. Yeah, so, you know, how I got to what I'm doing in Kamloops, there is a, a direct connection in a very, very strange way that I'm not sure I told you about in a, one of our earlier conversations. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to repeat it if I uh, or tell you about it. So, but yes, there's a direct connection between the work that I was doing with a project that I started in Montreal in 2002, and it went. I'm sorry, in 1992, and continued until 2002, and then 10 years later was kind of. I don't want. It wasn't picked up again, but the the direct connection to working with the homeless community as I had been doing in Montreal, but not exclusively in Montreal, like I'm doing it exclusively in, in Kamloops. But yeah, between 2002 uh, to 2012, during that period of time, I was homeschooling my son, my younger son, Julian, who's now 18 and at Western University in London. And he was born in, in the fall of 2004. So that program that I started in Montreal uh, was called Open City Productions 2002. Let's see how where to begin with that. It was an arts, a community arts-based initiative. So the idea between uh, behind Open City Productions was to create opportunities for artists of all disciplines to have gainful employment on a on a regular basis, part time or full time, short term or long term, well paid by working with communities, marginalized communities or communities that for whatever reason did not have access to the arts in any way, shape or form. So that could mean homeless shelters, prisons, public schools, senior centers, hospitals, right? And so that was that was the, the premise behind Open City Productions. I don't know if you want me to t- give you a quick two-minute bridge as to how from the International Youth for Peace and Justice tour, a short stint in Atlanta and back in Montreal. Yes, please do, because we have this huge gap there about, you know, when you mentioned about your son being born, I'm like, oops, we missed a whole big spot, a little splice Yeah, so the youth youth tour continued until 1991. I felt a strong emotional and nostalgic desire in 1989 to return to Atlanta. I was still the executive director for the youth tour in Montreal. By that time, we had done four tours, and it it felt almost like rote learning, so to speak, rote memory. It was like I could do it with my eyes closed. And there were other people that were very involved in it, and I just felt like I want to pass this on to somebody else and let them run with it. It was a big, big project. I now had two kids, three and a year and a half. So when did you marry their mom? I married in 86. And what is her name? Her name was Hetty. Yeah, she's she still lives in Montreal. I met her actually when when I started the youth tour program. Remember I told you I spoke to the students at yes. McGill? And they said, yeah, let's do it. And then I said, well, where are we going to do it? And one of the students said, well, I, I we work out of our an office at the Jewish Community Center for, Hill, uh, for McGill, the Hillel Center. And the Hillel Center was like a progressive... Uh, student community organization. And so we set up an office in there to get uh, the program going. And that's where I met Hetty. Hetty had an office in there. She was an independent documentary filmmaker and editor, and she was working on a project for the NFB when I met her there. And so, yeah, we, I guess we met in the summer of 85, 
we got married in early 86. My son, uh, Ariel, was born in the summer of 86. My daughter, Chelsea, was born in the fall of 87. You know, two young kids. I was actually living out in the country at that time, right near the New York State border, about 45 minutes from Montreal. And, uh, and yeah, doing this big project. And, and I just felt like, for a number of reasons, it was time for a change. I called Alice Lovelace, actually, in Atlanta, and said, I'm thinking about coming back to Atlanta. And she said, perfect, I've got a job for you at the Arts Exchange. And I went down uh, myself first to get going, started up. And that was in, I guess it was in late, late winter of 89. Yeah, right around that time. And then two or three weeks after I got there, I had a terrible car accident. And found myself in the hospital with a fractured hip. Hetty and the kids came down because I had rented a house in Grand Park. They came down, but I was like, you know, rehabbing for probably six weeks when they first came down. That was in the summer. Yeah, like, yeah, throughout the spring and early summer. Yeah, and so it was a tough time for Hetty. You know, for the kids, you know, it wasn't a big deal for them. They were young and resilient and whatever. Hetty didn't really take to Atlanta. She found it like too hot, too humid. And I think she just kind of missed, you know, her hometown of Montreal. It'd be a big change, especially yeah. with the heat and humidity in July and August. Yeah, so it only lasted about six months or so that I was in Atlanta for that time. And then we found our, ourselves back uh, in the same community that we were living in prior to going to Atlanta. That's Hemingford, Quebec, south of Montreal. And um, yeah, found myself back in there, not knowing what the hell I was going to do, right? Like, gave up the youth tour project to other people to run. The Atlanta thing didn't pan out. And what am I going to do? And so I've always been a vegetarian, like, since I was 18. Always ate healthy, always shopped at natural food stores in Montreal. And then one day in our, in our little community, which is just a, like a flashing light intersection, there was a general store on the corner that had been sitting vacant, I learned, for like, 40 or 50 years. It used to be the original general store of the community owned by a family that then got into a lot of arguments amongst themselves and they could never work it out. The family and... that works together and fights together. Yeah. yeah. And so the store just stayed closed. And then all of a sudden the for rent sign went up on it one day. And I was like, hmm, maybe I'll open up a natural food store. And I did. Oh, good for you, huh? Yeah. And I called it after, uh, you know, the children's uh, songwriter, singer, Rafi? Yes, I do. Yeah, so I named the, named the store after one of his song titles. I called it the Corner Grocery Store, naturally. <laughs> of course. But I tell you, in the 40-some-odd years that I've been doing not-for-profit community work and that I took this basically two-year hiatus to do something else, I, it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done in terms of a business. Short of what I'm doing now, which is kind of like a grocery store cafe, but just with homeless customers. Store yeah. gave you the structural abilities, if you will, skill set to be able to do what you're doing now. Yes. Yeah, yes. So that, that nothing for no good well, purpose. That as well as um, growing up the son of a, uh, a father who worked for a supermarket. And I can remember going to help my father reload the uh, the dairy freezers and the coolers and the shelves with inventory. So yeah, it's in my blood. Do you feel like your dad always smiling at you as you were doing it? I know he had passed on by that time, right? Like, yeah. 
Apple yeah, does not he, fall far from the tree, son. Yeah, he probably he probably would have had a chuckle about it. Yeah. Yes, yes. So this is all going on. You have your your uh, your grocery store. Was it like a co-op, like Seven Onda, or just no, strictly it retail? No, it was just privately owned. Yeah, but it was it it had that it had that feeling. Yeah, was it well received? It was in the beginning. Actually, I thought, my God, I'm, I I came across like an incredible genius idea because the day we opened there was a lineup of like a hundred people waiting for us to open the doors. And I thought, Oh my God. And and there was a, a kind of urban liberal community that lived down there. Uh, a lot of them worked for the national film board and other arts organizations and, and wanted, they were families and they wanted a different kind of experience than the urban experience. But the reason why everybody was lined up, nobody had been in the store for like 50 years and they were like, oh my God, let's go in and see what the store looks like. So looky lose, not buyers? Ah, they bought. They bought, and, of course they did. And things were working well until there was just a terrible recession in Canada in 1990. And because we were literally a five minute drive to the border, a lot of people were making the trek across the border to shop because the food was so much cheaper. And I think the Canadian dollar was also doing much better. I would at times get uh, tourists on their way to Montreal from Vermont and New Hampshire and New York that would accidentally stumble upon us and just love it and just say, oh, my God, I wish this was in my community. But our community was very small and I would say mostly conservative and not necessarily interested in alternative food sources. But it was fun, but it was hard work. So did you decide to close it? Yeah, so I, I sold the business and closed it up. My transition to Montreal, fortunately for me, was a, um, a creative one. I had a friend who was a professor at Concordia University. He and I had talked about, you know, the old days of theater, and he knew about, you know, the experiences I had at NYU with the theatrical outfit in Canada and so on. And he wanted to bring something experimental for the senior level students uh, for their final project in a theater department that was more, I don't want to say conservative, but more traditional in terms of its choice of productions and so on. And so he asked me if I would direct a show. And so I said yes. And I, uh, I chose a, a theater piece, an original theater piece that was created by a company that no longer existed, but that was born in New York City in the mid-60s called The Open Theater. And that was by the legendary, started by the legendary playwright and director, uh, Joseph Chaikin, who passed away a few years ago. And the show was called Terminal. I had to get permission from the playwright and Joseph Chaikin to remount it. And they thought I was out of my mind. <laughs> they said to me was that said, because to, to to do that undertaking or because they because you weren't going to get their permission well to them it was such a personal journey back then and and i think they first mounted this in 1971 or 72 and they were like a theater collective in a sense like the outfit of that of that generation and that tradition of theater making right not just hiring actors for a specific role, right, or a specific project and bringing in a director. This was, this was like a family, the open theater. And although they were defunct, yeah, they thought it was crazy. They were like, why do you want to do this? And I don't know if we can even, we got to talk to all of the former members, right? It's not, even though the playwright had, I guess, ownership on one level, she was part of, the, of this family. And so they contacted everybody and there were some that said, no way. And, but enough of them said, see what they do with it. 
let's see what they do with it. So the beauty of it was that the playwright and Joseph Chaikin agreed to come to Concordia and be a part of the rehearsal process. And then they volunteered. She volunteered and he volunteered as director, both together, to write an additional, a new kind of ending for it, to bring it up to a date, so to speak. But it was just a great experience for, for all of this, the students, for myself, for the faculty, and even for them. And it was, it was great. It was a great success. And yeah. So from there, you went west? Or are you still for a no, while? No, no, no. So, no, so, no, I was now living in Montreal, you know, did this contract with Concordia. And then one day I'm just at home reading a magazine. I think it was Mother Jones. And on the back cover was a, an announcement for a theater workshop in Los Angeles called Change Exchange that was being offered by the Los Angeles Poverty Department that was directed by a man named John Malpede, who I knew from my, my connection to Chicago back in the early 80s. The Los Angeles Poverty Department is, still exists today, an incredible phenomenon that was started by John Malpede when he went to Los Angeles for the 1984 Olympics, not to watch the Olympics, the sports, but as an artist participating in the fringe cultural Olympics that was happening in Los Angeles. And when he gets there, he sees this incredible homelessness situation in the Skid Row district of, of Los Angeles. He's, I guess you could say, fascinated by it or just emotionally challenged by it. He decides to go back the following year and live there, rents an empty storefront in that homeless district, starts an, a kind of an open-door theater improv environment. And out of that environment, grows a theater company made up of people who are homeless or formerly homeless. And then seven years later, in 1992, he initiates this first theater workshop, summer workshop called Change Exchange, where, and you don't have to be involved in theater to come into it, but you're going to live, you're going to participate on a, for a two-month theater workshop, and you can choose to live amongst the homeless in Skid Row and be put up in a single-room occupancy hotel, which I was, or you can live with a friend or wherever you want to live. And the program consists of two components. You train with the actors to learn all the techniques that they do to develop their work in the morning. And in the afternoon, you go to work in a welfare office as an advocate for the homeless and, and the poor, helping them to get the benefits that they need. We'll be back with more of Something to Talk About here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. This is Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. You can now take us along with you on Podbean, Spotify, Anchor, and Facebook. Download the free apps and take us along with you every place you go. Listen to us on your phone, your tablets, your watches, your devices, your earpods, or whatever your listening pleasure is. This way you can bring us along with you anytime, day or night, and hear all your favorite shows right here on the Island Waves channel.
Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. With your favorite programs such as Night Moves, Storytime with Nana Anna, Inside the 46th Parallel, The Book Nook, Country Roads, Morning Music, Mid-Morning Musical Melange, Something to Talk About, Jazz Flavors, Polkas and Pudokis, Classical Gas, and much more to come. Tune in to Island Waves for all your favorite programming and take us along with you wherever you go. You can follow us on Podbean, Facebook, Spotify, and Anchor, and take us along with you wherever you journey so we can go together. So be sure to tune in and follow Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. This is Island Waves, and you're listening to Something to Talk About. And we're here today with musician, author, playwright, director, and multi-level activist, Mr. Glenn Hilton. Glad to have you along with us today, Glenn. This is Island Way, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Glenn Hilke talking to you. We're here today with Glenn Hilke. And earlier, Glenn, when we were talking, we spoke what it was like growing up in the 50s in Brooklyn, your journey to Valdosta, Georgia, then to NYU, back to Atlanta, via Montreal twice. When we left off, we were talking about the Open Door Theater, which eventually became the, uh, the Change Exchange. Right. So what I was referring to was uh, back in 1991, um, I had this opportunity to direct uh, final year students in the Concordia Drama Program in the, uh, in the what can I call it, not the remake, but the, uh, uh, let's call it a reshaping of the open theaters uh, original play, which was called Terminal. And it was a fantastic experience to have an opportunity to work with two legendary artists from theater, Joseph Chaikin, director of the Open Theater and founder of the Open Theater, Susan, and I can't remember Susan's last name right now, but we'll look it up and we'll get it in there. But she was the playwright and they both came to Montreal during the rehearsal process and they were very moved by thought of seeing that original work that had not been seen for 30 years to see it remounted uh, for the public again. And they both participated in writing a new ending uh, to the play. And it was fantastic for the students to meet uh, these two, uh, like I said, iconic theater artists. And so that, um, that return to the theater, I should say, because I think I mentioned that I took a two-year hiatus when I came back from Atlanta and I opened up a uh, natural foods grocery store. You sure did. Which was very out of character for me, but understand connection to it many many years later here in Kamloops but that return to the theater then prompted me to participate in a workshop in Los Angeles called Change Exchange where I lived in the Skid Row area of Los Angeles which is infamous for being the kind of epicenter of homelessness in Los Angeles 
worked with an artist named John Malpied, who started the Los Angeles Poverty Department project in 1985 in Los Angeles. And I was there for two months and, and uh, it was really my first in-depth experience working with the home population in the United States. And it was also a very a stimulating experience to, to learn about the techniques, uh, the creative process and techniques that they had developed as they made original theater pieces. And so when I got back to Montreal in the, um, in the summer of 1991, I started thinking about a project to do that would not necessarily just relate to the homeless community in Montreal, but would be a more complex and detailed and, and multidisciplinary approach to expressing community arts service to the community. And so when I say, you know, a complex community arts service model, Basically, what I'm talking about is creating opportunities for artists of all different disciplines to engage with members of the community in a way that is not for the general public. And so what that can mean for artists, whether they are sculptors, painters, musicians, performance artists, magicians, whatever it might be, is a revenue stream for them, but also, more importantly, a way for them to understand some of the challenges of people who are living marginalized lives in the community. So, you know, those opportunities within our community are almost unlimited. They're in institutional settings like hospitals, prisons, public schools, housing projects, or if they are in other less institutionalized, but definitely community-based programs like working with the homeless, it gives artists an opportunity to practice their skill set Equally as important to share that skill set to inspire others to get in touch with their creativity. So that was the that was the impetus for starting what was called Open City Productions 2002. And I went to register that that not for profit society in Montreal in late 1991. And here, it's a quick funny story. Well, I had been a fan a long time of the Stanley Kubrick film 2001, and I love science fiction, and I love the whole idea of projecting what the future may look like. And I wanted this project to be a forward-thinking concept. So. You know, what would it look like in 10 years from now? And so here I am in probably November of, two, of 1991, and I'm standing at the counter at the registry office in Montreal to register the not-for-profit society. And the guy says to me, what's the name of the society? And I say, I said it in French, but I'll just say it in English now. Well, you we have to say it in both official languages. Yeah, I'll say it uh, in French. Both, both in French and English for you. So I say to him in French, Les Productions Cité Ouverte uh, 2002, Open City Productions 2001. And he says to me, he looks it up, types it in, he says, I'm sorry, that's taken. Oh. And I said, what do you mean that's taken? He said, the 2001. There's companies with 2001. So what do you want to do? I, 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 <laughs> it's like two minutes before his lunch break. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. He said, well, you have to make a decision right now. What do you want to do? What do you want to call it? And I said, uh, okay, 2002? He said, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's not taken. So, so, it, the, so the rub was the, the year, 2001, because there were other companies registered, or that particular name? Just the 2001? That, no, with that particular year. Ah. So it went from 2001 to 2002. That is an interesting and that, story. That was, the, 
that was the beginning of the process. And so that company ran for 10 years. It actually, I actually uh, closed it down in 2002, mostly due to a lack of financial resources. Yeah, it was an incredible 10-year journey that expressed itself locally in Montreal, nationally, and internationally. What was your revenue stream? Was it through productions, donations? Did you get grants? Yeah, we got grants. Yes, there were some individual foundation corporate donations over the years. The projects span a spectrum from something similar to what I learned when I was in Los Angeles. So we developed a traveling cabaret open mic program in homeless shelters in, in Montreal. After that, we developed an artist in residence in public schools program. From there, I shouldn't say from there because all of these projects continued. You had a citywide artist in schools program. You had a program where we worked with uh, young offenders and youth that were in foster care. And we created an opportunity for them to train with artists of different disciplines but get paid for it through a government grant. And that at the end of their tenure working with, and it was mostly visual artists, that they would put on a major exhibit with the help of these artists, facilitators that they worked with. The international component was an incredible experience for me, and it almost catapulted me uh, out of Canada and to move to South Africa. But in 1999, I think it was, We came up with an idea to send artists, 20 to 30-year-olds of all different disciplines from across Canada, and there would usually be 20 of them at a time. We would send them to different cities and townships in South Africa for nine months, and they would share their technical experience that they had learned in university or in, you know, professional training institutes or just amongst their peers they would share those skill sets with South Africa, young South African artists and organizations because some of these South African artists and organizations didn't necessarily have access to the same level and type of resources that we had in Canada. What the Canadians benefited from was a social consciousness and political awareness of how do you use your artistic skill set to address social issues. Back in Canada. So how did you have the vision to do all this? I mean, it just sounds daunting. Did you have a huge organization of staff or, or volunteers that obviously you're at the head, but you can't physically put hands on to do this all? How did yeah. you, how so did you do had, it? Yeah, we had, a, we had a fairly big staff. And how did it get done? There were, there were lots of government grants available at that time in Quebec and nationally in Canada that were attempting to move people, not it wasn't required, but to to inspire people to get off of social assistance or off of employment insurance by increasing the revenue that they could get while still on it. So in other words, if I was getting $600 a month on welfare, but I participated, say, 20 hours a week, part-time employee with a company or an organization, I could then and I can't remember what the figures were, but let's just say I could double or triple my monthly revenues. So it was like a subsidy for for bettering your life and getting off social assistance. Yes, and it was a subsidy for for the, the company or the organization 
to enable them to hire staff that they could not afford to hire. So the employment insurance part of things used to be called Article 25. I don't know if it exists anymore. But in other words, if I was on unemployment insurance and I was making $180 a week uh, based on what I was making, you know, when I had the job. Well, if I took on this contract and the contracts would usually last for six months or so, you would then make, I think it was up to $450 a week. So that was, you know, quite a big increase in people's revenues. And there were so many artists that were on unemployment insurance welfare that it was not hard to find artists that wanted to participate. So it basically elevates them out of their socioeconomic status, focuses on skills that they can either learn or put to good use, and move them up out of the whole welfare social assistance scene while doing things to to better society at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Win and win. Yeah, that was the ideal model for that. I mean, for the government, what it showed the general public is how many people we took off the welfare rolls and the unemployment rolls, right? So was there a method of accountability that you had to have to show, to prove its success? And was it successful, in your opinion? Uh, Yes and no. Yes. I mean, yes, there were forms, monthly forms you had to fill out because we had to get reimbursed for the funding that we, you know, advanced There was not a promise, but there was an attempt. There would be an attempt to continue to engage the artists. So follow up after the contract. Right. Yeah. And so there were many creative ways to to work these programs. Yeah. And so we did manage to have quite a few people helping out in many, many different ways. And a lot of artists gained a lot of, you know, new experiences of working in the community. Uh, both in Montreal as well as overseas. How did you partner with this program where you did send them overseas? What was the process for that? Or how did you become aware of the ability to do that? Or was that your idea? The the program in South Africa? Yes. So I had a friend in Montreal, a South African woman named Lorraine Klassen. And Lorraine was a very popular performer. She lived in Montreal. She was Canadian. And I loved her performance style and and her repertoire, and we became friends. And it was a conversation that I had with her where she enlightened me about the role of artists in South Africa and how they were so engaged on a social and cultural and political level. And her mother, Tandi Klassen, who was still living in South Africa, uh, was a legendary singer-performer in the same way that you would think of, I'm just trying to think of, uh, you know, she would be something like the Joni Mitchell of South Africa, right? You know, or the the Pete Seeger in the United States. So she was, her songs and her style really touched the everyday person in the black community in South Africa. So she was well recognized in in that area and in the community, right? And so, so Lorraine said to me, if you pay for my ticket, to South Africa, I'll introduce you to everybody that you need to meet. And so that's what we did. So I went I went with Lorraine the first time in 1999, in early 1999. Yeah, she introduced me to so many organizations and artists. I met her mother. I lived with her family in uh, the township of Soweto. I spent probably a month there and then came back home and we started the process of Bring together both the the contact to find artists 
across Canada that wanted to participate, as well as uh, the organizations in South Africa that also wanted to be partners. Oh, so it wasn't just students from uh, the, uh, the group that you were dealing with. This was right across Canada that you coordinated people to go. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's quite a, an undertaking. Yeah. And so we would have the artists would, they would all, this was obviously before internet and Zoom, Zoom meetings. So the artists that were going to go to South Africa first came to Montreal en route to South Africa. So whether they came from BC or Saskatchewan, they would come and spend a few days all together meeting one another because some of them would be working, although with different organizations in the same city. And so they would have one another as social contacts and as supports, uh, whether they were in Durban or Cape Town or Johannesburg. We, we primarily placed them in those three cities and, and the surrounding township. Now, who paid for their expenses? Was there fundraising for that or did you get government support to do that? It all, it, as I recall, it, it mostly, I would say 90% came from, from government sources on all levels municipal federal provincial provincial. and federal yeah yeah primarily federal i think yeah it's really amazing the support that this country does give uh when it when it's there i mean sometimes you have to look hard and it doesn't always knock on your door but the the support is is wonderful i i believe yeah no it it was yeah i mean as i you know, as we talk about it, I think back on it, it's like, Jesus, it's like, and we, it was big. I mean, we did that. We would send, you know, a group of 20 artists off to South Africa for nine months. I think we it's amazing, a, a, Glenn. We take a three-month break and do it again. I thought I, you know, looking from what I know about you personally and then looking at what uh, what we did some research on you, kind of blowing me out of the water with all the things that you've done. It's beyond my wildest expectation how full your life has been and the many things that you've been involved with. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's funny, but um, yeah, it's and a lot of it, kind of happens i want to say serendipity and serendipity serendipity. a lot of a lot of motivation i think on your part as well yeah for sure Uh, and And i guess i would have to ask you what does motivate you to get that energy to to do these things well i don't know the energy yeah where does the energy come from i mean that's a physical and mental health uh, combination i guess i had mentioned to you earlier one of the life-changing experiences i had when i met when I was living in Atlanta in 79 and I met Michelangelo Pistoletto. At that time, I, I had been putting on a uh, performance in that era of the theatrical outfit where we were all just producing and ripping our own shows, not as one whole company, but as individual members of the outfit. And I had adapted a Samuel Beckett short story called The Expelled. And it was being put on at the time Michelangelo Pistoletto was there. And he came and saw the show. And then he said the strangest thing to me, as he always said, he was, the, the things he would always say always took me by surprise. Yeah, he came, he came up to me after the show and he said to me, you have energy like the sun. And I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. I think that sums it up, Glenn. I mean, I, astrologically speaking, I'm an Aries from what I know about that, and I'm not a a follower of astrology, but when I did live in Atlanta, I learned quite a lot about astrology because one of the productions that the theatrical outfit did, Macbeth, we had to col- we collaborated with a, uh, an ast- a local astrologer, Jeff Jower, in Atlanta, and so I learned quite a lot about 
myself through his his astrological lens when he did my chart. So and one funny thing he said to me, uh, and this might be the second part of the answer that, to your question about the energy. I went to see him, and the first thing he said to me as looking at my chart, and because he, he knew I rode my bike around town a lot, he said, he said, how do you stay on your bicycle? I don't understand it. And I said, what the hell are you talking about, Jeff? He said, no, no, I, I can't understand looking at your chart. When, when you're riding your bicycle, how do you stay on your bicycle? Because your thoughts become feelings and your feelings become thoughts immediately. So how do you focus on your bicycle? How do you stay on it and not crash? I guess that kind of relates to the, the process that goes on in my body. But I have to say that, you know, over the years and the different projects and programs that I've been involved in, whether I founded them or co-founded them or became a member of them. Without a doubt, it was always the inspiration of someone else involved uh, that might have been a peer and we founded something together or created something together. So whether that was Barbara Covington, Del Hamilton, Joseph Chaikin, uh, Harry Belafonte, John Malpied with the Los Angeles Poverty Department and so on, or Lorraine Clausen, the South African singer. Yeah, I, I, I've been very fortunate to have had contact with, you know, some amazing people, artists and, and non-artists over the course of my life. So it's, it's kind of a merging of collaborative energies that, that kind of spins into and morphs into these wonderful accomplishments. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes the choice of, of how you create does not necessarily always have to be incomplete, unique and new, like creating a new wheel, so to speak. I'm, I'm just reminded myself of a quote from the French filmmaker. I think it's it was Godard, Jean-Luc Godard, who a colleague of his once came to him and said, I just saw this film that was done by this young Parisian filmmaker and this guy is just has just stolen so many of your ideas and your techniques and your style and Godard said to him I don't care what he's taken I care where he's taken it to and I think that's one of the ways that I work you know like when I met the folks that did the children of war tour and then I contacted them and, and said I'd like to do something similar in Canada but different that's what happened you know the inspiration was there the experience and the model was there, but we had to make it our own. We had to make it something different and, you know, bring in different people and do it, you know, I, I guess I could say in a Canadian way, right? Well, isn't that sort of the, the hope of the originator of the idea is that there's a continuum and even if it does morph into other things more appropriate to the style of what it's shaping up to be, you know, one could look at it and get ticked off that it's your idea and it's proprietorial and others look at it and say, yeah, it was an original concept and now look what it's become. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think, how I would respond if, um, if I were in that position where, you know, somebody found inspiration from something that I had done decided to run with it in, a, in the same or different way. Yeah. So you, this is uh, around early 2000 in, in uh, Montreal, where this is happening for you. And then you mentioned that you closed that phase of the theater or that project uh, in early 2000? Yeah, in 2002. So at what point did you leave Montreal and how did Kamloops, BC come into the picture? So I stayed for another years until 2012. During that 
last those last 10 years in Montreal. Five years earlier, I had met my present partner and wife, Heidi Coleman, in 1997. We are still together and we were living together. In 2002, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, what I'm going to be doing now that this other program is closed. And I decided to go back to university because I, I had never completed my bachelor's degree. Uh, I, I dropped out of Brooklyn College in 1970 and then couldn't go back because of the draft. The time that I spent at Valdosta State College and then on to NYU, I never finished the programs mostly because I was so inspired to move on to something else due to the, the training and education and the people I met. And so I just never had that degree. And I, I just thought, okay, I'm 50 years old now. Uh, let me do that. Let me, just, let me just go back to school and get a degree and finish my degree. And so that's what I did. We'll be right back with more of Something to Talk About and today's guest... Glenn Hilke. Some tiny town on Fair Prince Edward Island Waiting for a ship to come and find him A one-horse place, a smiling face, some coffee and a tiny trace A fiddling in the distance far behind him A dime across the counter then, a shy hello, brand new friend They walked along the street in the wintry weather A yellow light, an open door and a welcome friend, there's room for more they're standing there inside together He said, I've heard that tune somewhere before it But I can't remember when Was it on some other friendly shore? Or did I hear it on the wind? Was it written in the sky above? I think I heard it from someone I love Never heard it sound so sweet since then Here it is A little boy says, I'll take your hat He's caught up in the magic of her smile Leap the heart inside him Went it off across the floor He sent his clumsy buddy Graceful as a child He said, there's magic in the fiddler's arm There's magic in this town Magic in the dancer's feet And the way they put them down People smiling everywhere Boots and ribbons, locks of hair Laughter and old blue suits and Easter gowns Yes, sir.
Well, now that sailor's gone, the room is bare. The old piano's sitting there. Someone's hat's left hanging on the rack. Empty chairs, a wooden floor that feels a touch of shoes. No more waiting for the dancers to come back. And the fiddle's in the closet of some daughter of the town. The strings are broken, the bow is gone, and the cover's buttoned down. Sometimes on December nights, when the air is cold and the wind is right, there's a melody that passes through this town. Here it is. person once said, the world is a stage and we are but the players. Glenn Hilke has played and performed on many a world stage. We are most fortunate to have him along with us as he journeys his way through life from Brooklyn, New York to Kamloops, B.C. decision for me go back to university and get a bachelor and it was like okay uh, I went to Concordia what was I going to get a bachelor in back when I was a, a junior or senior in high school at Bishop Lachlan High School in Brooklyn there was a day what they called career day where each student had a whopping five minutes to meet with a quote-unquote career counselor who was a brother a religious brother. And at the time, the guy that they chose to be your career counselor was the oldest brother in the in the hood. And he said, one question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said to him, clearly, I love archaeology and anthropology. And that's what I would like to study and be. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you're so good in track and field. I think you should go into physical education. And that that's was... where you went to Valdosta on the idea you were going to be in physical education. Okay, now it comes, the chickens come home to roost. What imaginative and, and professional counseling skills they, they had for us back then, huh, Virginia? And so I, I enrolled in the social and cultural anthropology program at, uh, at Concordia. I got my degree there, and I went on to a, a master's program there, and then my son, Julian, was born. He was born right near the tail end of the master's program in 2004. And so at 52, I became a, uh, a new dad. Well, congratulations. Heidi, Better late than never, right? Heidi had, be, had been and continues to be an incredible mother and support to my two older kids, uh, Ariel and Chelsea, that were born in 86 and 87 uh, in Montreal. And so, yeah, so Heidi took off for the first year. And during that year, I was teaching high school students in these specialized alternative schools, one for students that were in trouble with the law, and they were youthful offenders that were mandated to go to high school. And then I worked with a very, very special program in a facility that 
looked nothing like the school. It just looked like a residential home in uh, in Montreal for children, not not children, teenagers who had either tried to commit suicide or had spoken clearly enough about doing it that their parents and social workers were worried that they would actually try and carry it out the suicide ideation. They were, I don't know, think they were mandated, but they were certainly offered an opportunity to continue their high school education, but in a very, very different setting that was both residential and academic. So I taught there. So for that year where Heidi took her maternity leave, I did that work. And then when she went back to work, I decided that I didn't want to work anymore, that I wanted to stay home with Julian. And so from 2005 or to beginning of 2006 until Julian started high school, I stayed home and homeschooled him. That's a very rewarding and challenging experience, but very rewarding, as you well know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a great, great experience. And the transition that we had moving from Montreal to Kamloops was part of that homeschooling experience. If you'd like, I can tell you that story, and it helps us transition from east to west. Absolutely, absolutely. So Julian has always been a kid that latches onto something, and then it is like that every minute of the day. That's his interest. That's what he talks about. That's whether it's whether he's learning about it by listening, reading, or touching it. That's what he's about. And so we moved to Kamloops in 2012. So I would say back in roughly 2010, 2011, when Julian was six, seven years old, he was completely into dinosaurs, paleontology, like uh, everything. This kid was, he was just amazing in terms of what he could retain and remember as far as names and eras and the names of those eras and behaviors of dinosaurs and so on. And so my wife had been hired through a series of Skype interviews for her job that she still does here in Kamloops, which is um, she's CEO of the Royal Inland Hospital Foundation. And so she had to start her job July of 2012. Uh, we weren't, Julie and I weren't ready to move yet. We had two dogs as well and a house in Montreal. And there was a lot to figure out. During that period of time where we were getting ready to make the transition to Kamloops, he and I, Julian proposed an idea to me. He said, Dad, why don't we get an RV and drive across the country with the dogs and visit all of the dinosaur museums and paleontological sites in Canada and the U.S. along the border? And I was like, "Okay, sure. Why not? It sounds like a great homeschooling experience. And so that's what we did. I found an RV on Kijiji for like 1800 I was 30 years old, got it checked out, went to a local print store and got a bunch of huge dinosaur decals and, and text, slapped it on the RV and the what we call the Jurassic Tour bus took off from Montreal. And three weeks later, we arrived in Kamloops, crisscrossing the border many times, visiting these incredible paleontological sites in both Canada and the U.S. Yeah. And this was in 2012. I was in 2012, yeah. I'm missing something here. How did you, how did Kamloops become a destination or was that just part of the cross-country trek you were doing? No, so Kamloops became the destination because that's where, that's where Heidi landed a job. So 
Heidi had been working in Montreal. She was actually working at a foundation in Montreal at the time. And we had both been talking about wanting to change, right? Wanting to a different place to live. In 2010, 2011, right to 2012, it was, it was like the last remnants of the old guard of the Parti Québécois. They were still harping on, you know, English language and English language sign in Montreal. And like there were these like local vigil language vigilantes that were out with their rulers, you know, measuring the size of letters on business signs in our neighborhood and other English neighborhoods and reporting them to the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the, the government department was, but it was the one that policed everything linguistic. You know, I had another person that we interviewed speak about this very same issue, and it was one of the things that catapulted them out of the area. And they were born and raised in Naranda in Quebec. So, yeah, they're here in PEI now, but sometimes, you know, things that are meant to be done for a good purpose have a way of backfiring. And I think in this case, maybe that might have been the case. Plus, wasn't Quebec big still on seceding from the country? Or had that passed? Yeah, yeah, that that was still being talked about. There was also a law that was being discussed at the time, which was, it was called, I can't remember what it was, what it was called in French or English at this point, but it was basically a law that would, quote unquote, tolerate new immigrants and refugees in terms of what they would be allowed to do and where and say and work and so on. I do and remember you know that. What, yes, I, yeah, I do and remember what frustrated, that. What frustrated us was that we were both bilingual. We were very much immersed in, in Montreal and Quebec society, Francophone and Anglophone, friends, work, colleagues, you name it the arts, but there was so much corruption at the time. I mean, there were literally, there were concrete overpasses on the highway that were collapsing onto cars and killing people due to organized crime and government corruption. And there was just so many social issues that needed work on, like poverty issues, housing issues, homelessness issues, addiction, so much stuff. And, you know, what seemed to be the big priority for the government was like the size of English letters on signs. We're just like, enough of this. It's crazy. Had enough. And so, you know, where to go was up in the air. I had never been out west except once or twice when when we visited friends in Vancouver. Heidi had never lived out west. The furthest west she ever lived was Ottawa. I had never lived anywhere but Montreal and and obviously uh, in eastern Quebec. So it was just putting out some feelers. And so she applied for a couple of jobs in Vancouver and uh, one in Delta, B.C., not too far from Vancouver. And then the headhunter came back and said to her, the job in Delta was just taken by a person who was working as head of a foundation in Kamloops. Would you be interested in the job in Kamloops? We had never heard of Kamloops. We were like, what? Who? Like, where is that? Never heard of it. And so we did go to visit Kamloops in early June of 2012, once Heidi was notified that she was the candidate that they wanted to offer the job to. And it was it was pretty shocking to find where we were going to be living, you know. It never we had never lived in a mid-sized Canadian city. 
and it's a small mid-sized Canadian city, Kamloops of 100,000. You know, it's not like cities in Ontario, like London or Kitchener-Waterloo that are in the hundreds of thousands, but we decided to give it a go, yeah. You've been listening to Something to Talk About. Join us again in our next episode as we journey with Glenn Hilke as he lands firmly on his feet with his family in Kamloops, B.C. and enters a whole new phase in his life which will take him into social activism, food insecurities, addictions, homelessness, many other social issues, and even a brief foray into politics. I'm Virginia Winter for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Something to Talk About is a door-in-the-floor production in association with Winterlude Studios for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Executive producer and creator, Virginia Winter. Research contributions by Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Balms. Audio technical and director assistance, Brittany Williams. Post-production, Winterlude Studios, Prince Edward Island, Master Editing, Virginia Winter. The producers would like to acknowledge and thank all of our participants of our series, Something to Talk About, who generously gave their time to be interviewed and share their lives with us. And to Holland College School of Journalism and Mass Communications, particularly to Brittany Williams and to Lindsay Carroll. Special gratitude of thanks and appreciation to our technical guru and advisor, Dr. Watson Ohms, and to Millie, our loyal canine companion and moral support. Something to talk about is a door in the floor, Winterlude Studio production made possible with support from Prince Edward Island Senior Secretariat and the Winter Foundation for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.